You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series Podcast, Episode 24. Today, I talk with Dr. Jonathan Dort, Program Director at Innova Fairfax, and he talks to us about all things that a program director wants us to know. On Wednesday, May 18th at 6 p.m. Central, I'm offering a webinar on starting a new job. Head to bosssurgery.com for more details. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome back. I have a very special guest. This is Dr. Jonathan Dort. He is the program director at Innova Fairfax Medical Campus in Falls Church, Virginia. I've known him for many years um, and greatly admired all that he's done and his educational spirit and just his interest in other people improving has always been so fantastic. Uh, And so I'm really excited to have him on today to talk about his take being a program director about the residencies and the trainees and all his tips and tricks that he's learned so far. So Dr. Dort, welcome to the Boss Business of Surgery Series podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate the the invitation to be here. And let me say the the respect is mutual and uh, the this boss series, which was your brainchild from so many years ago. I'm so glad that, that you're continuing this and bringing so much great information to so many people. It was terrific then, and, and it's terrific now. Oh, thank you so much. Now, what would you tell someone if, if they ask a little bit about you? Like, how would you describe yourself? Uh, still learning. <laughs> That's how I would describe it. I never understood how surgeons have egos because it's the most continuously humbling business I can imagine being in. Uh, but I'm still learning on a day-by-day basis. And it's an old cliche with educators, but I, I learn far more from my residents than I think I teach them. That's fantastic. Now, you did not start off in education. Tell us how your career yeah. has, um, has progressed. Certainly. Uh, I, was, I did the HPSB program with the United States Navy. And I did a, with the Navy, you do after a preliminary internship, you do a general medical officer year, which I did with the uh, Marines in Okinawa and then finished my residency at the East Bay program, UC Davis, and then did some aircraft carrier time uh, on the independent side of Yokosuka, Japan. Did some more time with the Marines at Pendleton uh, that included a few deployments to Korea and the Persian Gulf. And uh, once I finished my military time, I went into private practice in, in Wichita, Kansas, and that included working with residents every day. And so I, uh, I was part of a somewhat hybrid system where, where the private practitioners were the, were the faculty for the residents. And I, I love teaching, but it was still a private practice. And it's still everything you recognize about the challenges of a private practice were there. But we also had residents that, that we were able to train and, and educate. Uh, following that, around uh, 12 years ago, I had an opportunity to go out to Virginia Tech. They were opening a new medical school at the Carilion System and, and something I always wanted to be a part of and uh, moved east for that. And after uh, just a short period of time, this position came up here where I am. I've always been a city kid, and I always really wanted to be part of this type of experience uh, in the position I am now. And I took it, and that was 11 years ago, and and I, I still love it. What was the 
biggest mental um, reason that you that you took this job? Like, what was it about private practice that you decided that you didn't want to pursue that? What were some of your challenges? I was working harder and harder in private practice. Uh, and I don't think that's going to be any mystery to, to many people in your audience, but it just seemed like that little hamster wheel under me just kept moving faster and faster. And I was running harder and harder. And at some point, I didn't make any conscious moves to get away from it, other than the opportunity to be on the ground floor of a medical school, getting back to the East Coast, which is where a lot of family was and where I grew up, sort of coincided at the same point. And I thought, you know what, I is this all I'm going to have? Is this running faster and faster on the hamster wheel until either the wheel stops or I go flying off of it? And so I thought, you know what? Now's the time. We're going to make a courageous move and do this. And and uh, it being in a, uh, a non-private uh, employed but academic practice has been fantastic. There are a whole lot of new challenges, to be fair, but you lose the you lose that whole sense of having to work harder and work harder and, and worry about every single consult and case and, and, and just to the point of a fever pitch. And I don't have that kind of pressure anymore. You lose a little bit of your autonomy in an employed situation, but uh, given what you gain versus lose, I, I'm quite happy in my current situation. Because I wanted to point out um, something that that stood out to me, which uh, was true for me too. You know, you have a like a relatively good position, and you know that it is a courageous move to leave something that's good. And I think that's probably people's biggest challenges in their career is to leave something good, knowing that there might be something better. And so it's no mistake that um, that you made that bold move and landed in a job that really suited more of, of who you are. So tell us a little bit about how your job has changed over the last 11 years. It's changed more than it hasn't changed. I think surgical education is so different. It's so funny. It's, there are these continued and aggressive attempts, I'll use the word attempts, by different organizations to try to put structure and specifics around what has for a long time been an apprenticeship system. And it's different organizations with different priorities doing that. And so that piles up a lot of regulations in how you have to provide that education. But in the end, education itself doesn't change. You're still across that operating room table. You're still in that rounding circle. You're still in that clinic office. And that's where real education occurs. But in that part, other than the explosion of technology and information, that part really hasn't changed as much. But everything else around the structure of education and the administration of programs and the requirements of programs uh, has changed a ton. And it only goes in the direction of more requirement and more regulation uh, to to satisfy uh, these basics for for, uh, training curriculum. And uh, I love that visual that you, I don't know if you still have it on your wall where you had the picture where there's like a paragraph of the, the things that you had to do. And now there's like multiple pages of things. It is. It is. I, you know, if you go through the, just the ACGMEs or see the program requirements, which just keep growing and growing. And certainly the restrictions around working uh, that the changes in 2003 and then the changes in 2011 
And then just on a continuous basis, there are just more and more requirements around specifics of what kind of curriculum you have to give and how you have to deliver it and what kind of assessment and uh, that all just increases. And I'm not saying it's all, it's all well intended, but it certainly makes it a different environment with which one oversees a program than what it was like 10 years ago. Right. And I thought you said it best, too, is that uh, the only the main problem with these regulations is that it moves you more from the educating role to the administrative role, um, which obviously is a lot different. Yes. Nobody uh, enthusiastically as a surgeon says, I want to be an administrator. I guess that's a harsh statement. Maybe some people do because I I see that they're around. But uh, I certainly anyone who's trying to be an educator is if you ask him to a uniform, what's your favorite part of this? No one's going to say I love filling out all the forms and and I love filling in all the boxes and I love turning in all the annual updates and reports. That's not anyone's favorite part. We we love to teach, we love to mentor, but you have to take care of the other side to keep programs afloat. But yes, you're you're right. It's more and more going from just that educator to having to be an administrator and not sure that's everyone's favorite part of it. And you know, you and I both lived like through the transition of the 80 hour work week. And I know that it's really changed a lot of things, uh, both the programs and, you know, maybe even the trainees. What was your take on uh, how that has evolved the surgery residency? I think that a lot of the changes were necessary. I don't think any of us who went through it thought that this resembled humanity in any way. And we just did it because we didn't know any better and that that's what you had to do. And there was this medieval ritualistic cadence of the requirements of what was required. And we all just went along with it. Of course, it takes horrible outcomes to drive change. And, and that's what happened with duty hour restrictions. And, I mean, the Libby Zion case, which could be argued that that actually had nothing to do with duty hours, but it did set a conversation off of how crazy is this? And I think some changes were necessary, but I think the pendulum really has started to swing a little far because I, you don't need to be here for 120 hours to know what you're doing. Surgical care and capability in surgical care is experiential as well as it is cognitive or skill-based. But I don't think anything useful in education happens when you're awake at 28, 29, 30, 31 hours. And, And so attacking that I think was completely legitimate. But that takes up about four lines of the requirements and and then the curricular and structural requirements that have ensued over the past 10, 15 years uh, have become increasingly onerous. And, and it, it only makes it harder to provide a real education. Got it. And speaking of those that you educate, how has the trainee changed over these 11 years? It's a different way of teaching now. Uh, or they, the trainee that comes in, the student that finishes and comes in, learns in a completely different way than we did. Uh, I think the idea of go home and read this textbook is kind of a cute, quaint thing to say to someone. They smile and nod at you and tell you what you want to hear. I'm not sure that's exactly how the the, the resident of the uh, of the third decade of this century is learning. I think there's a lot of online learning. I think there's a lot of podcast learning. I think. There's a lot of module type learning, and I'm not saying that they don't read, but it's very different expectation of how they get their curriculum than what we delivered. And 
it's not important that they learn the way that I think the tradition should require them to learn. It's just important that they learn and that they pick it up. And, and so I, I think any learner focused curriculum is going to beat a teacher focused curriculum because in the end they have to learn that the way they learn, but we're responsible for making sure that the information they need to hear is there and provided to them. And so we still have to oversee all the curricula that they see, but I, I can't go by the old model of here's your copy of Sabiston and your set. I, I don't think that exists much anymore. Interesting. Well, I know five years ago when I was our um, associate program director of our residency, um, SCORE was a big um, basis of it. Is that still, has that gained more ground? SCORE has been terrific. I, it's the first real attempt at trying to, to put together a, a unified curriculum offered in a sequenced way. And, and uh, Dr. Joshi and Dr. Klingensmith and all the people who are responsible for putting SCORE together, what a monster load of, of effort to do that. Uh, and if you go through the SCORE curriculum, it's, it's the curriculum is created by you and me and people who are interested in education and contributing. Uh, what it really does best is put that outline structure of here's what you need to know. It then encourages you to, to go find others. It doesn't say we're the only source of how you have to learn this material. Just go find your, these are the sources that are available. And, and I think that's good. But at least there's something out there that says, here's what you need to know. And, and here's the totality and the specifics of what you need to know. And, and it gives a great outline for how we can put together our didactics. I've heard different opinions of some people love SCORE, some people hate SCORE, some people love certain parts of SCORE. Uh, I just appreciate the whole effort of SCORE because it hands a program director uh, kind of a binder to say, here's here's where to begin. And, and it works really well for that. I think you're absolutely true, especially as people get away from textbooks, which have, you know, the table of contents and that's what's in there. Um, it kind of provides a little bit more of a life table of contents, you know, assessment. If Because people are going to find exactly as you said, their sources wherever and um, having at least an outline framework uh, is a great place to help at least. Yes, definitely. Uh, it, it does. And you're right. There's a single static table of contents in a textbook. This is a very dynamic, interactive table of contents that puts you in other places. And so I, I, and it allows a little bit of individualized learner take of which of these connections is going to be the best way for me to learn this material. If someone is interested in becoming a resident, what are some of the things that they need to look at? Like, what do you, now that you've had like 11 years of taking people through, what do you look for in a resident um, into your program? I know that's a little bit different in each program, but what are your thoughts? It is. Uh, I, when we sit down to review uh, applications and interviews, and we all joke that none of us would get into our own program at this point, which I guess is a good thing. I'm glad I, I didn't have to be at this level. Uh, the level that people have to get to is, it's really gets steeper and steeper. And I think the competition, we keep opening more medical schools. We're not really opening more slots. And so the hourglass of, of matching uh, is getting thinner. And I think that's making people nervous. Also this absurd artificial academic arms race that we all participate in of there are people, research is necessary to, to forward the human condition, but to ask that everyone has to be an, a first author publisher by the time they graduate from, from medical school, I think is an unfair burden. And I, I think the same thing with residency to fellowships. I think we've created this 
this somewhat archaic model that everyone has to be so well published and you have to start your own nonprofit and you have to spend a year overseas and you have to, uh, it, you know, I understand where the intent is, but I think we just put way too much burden on people for what the, the, the entry ticket costs to, to be able to do this. And I'm a total believer in holistic application review. I read every word of every application. I hibernate for 10 days in September. I block my schedule. I read every single one of those thousand applications because applicants took the time to fill it out. I'm going to read it. No, I'm not saying I don't screen for anything. I don't screen for scores. I don't screen for grades or, or, or anything like that. Uh, and so I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a lot of elements to an application, but I think people just we're putting way too much pressure on our students for what deans then turn around and tell students, well, you have to have this, 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 and this, if, if you want to go anywhere with a name that you'd recognize. And I think we, we all agree as a group that it's gotten out of hand, but no individual can, can pull it back. It, it has to be an agreed upon withdrawal of, of this heightened academic arms race. And you know, no single raindrop believes it's responsible for the flood, but in the end, that's what happens. It all comes together that way. So what I would tell people who are students who are, who are looking to apply uh, is do the activities that you are passionate about, that you're interested in. Don't start filling your plate with things that somebody tells you externally. Well, you have to have this on your resume. You have to have this because there's no magic formula. A lot of program directors will go out there and say, this is what everyone looks for. And then you talk to the next program director and they say, this is not what everyone, and they say it with such authority as if it's the only pathway there. And there are as many pathways and opinions as there are program directors. And in the end, you want to find the right fit in a residency. So if you do the things that are important and passionate to you, if those are the things in your experience boxes and on your resume and in your personal statement, then you will be appreciated by the program that was meant to find you to accentuate those things. And that not that looks at some artificial tally you've given them that you have no plan to sustain. And now you're in a place that continues to expect that from you and you're not gonna give it. And that's a recipe for failure. Well, I think that's like the best advice ever. Cause I know um, I did a lot of research and then people are like, I know I have to do research to, to get this. And, and you could tell they have zero interest and like, what a miserable way to go. And I think your point too, especially that that's going to be expected to be sustained um, is, is a recipe for disaster. It's a, a critical point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, beyond that, I would say that, you know, uh, step one went past fail this year and everyone said, well, at least the high uh, pressure of, of the, 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 state, the high stakes of, of step one is over with. And no, that just means that now step two is high stakes until they take that away. And then something else will be high stakes because there's stakes to this. And, and my opinion would be don't take away any metric because that makes, if you shrink the denominator, it heightens this, the, the intent of the numerator. So the more metrics that are out there, the less high stakes each one becomes. And if you have a, a place that throws out a score as a screen and doesn't read the rest of your application, you didn't want to go there anyway. That's a great point. And I think that, you know, we talk a lot about failure and, you know, failure is just not achieving a stated outcome. So if your stated outcome is I want to go to this place and you don't get in there, it's not 
it, I mean, it's sort of a failure in the fact that you didn't achieve your stated outcome, but maybe you were never meant to be there anyway. If you weren't willing to do the things that would sustain you to, to be in that program, it's probably a gift. I completely agree with you. Completely agree. It is a gift. You won't see it that way when you get the email back uh, or the match list result. But in the long run, it, it is absolutely a gift. It's don't, Failure is part of eventual success. And to your point, failure doesn't mean you didn't match at your number one. Uh, it, it, you can only control so many things. And your pathway is whatever was meant to be. And there are just so many stories of people who were crushed by their match results and ended up having an absolutely fantastic pathway at the end of which they said the right thing happened to me. And, and, and I believe that to be true. I think that that idea of just trust the process is probably yes. the best advice. Now, since you read all of these applications, what are some of the things that have stood out to you? You know, since you have this long track record of people who've been successful, what are the things that have stood out to you in the application process and saying this person, this resident is going to succeed? It's a great question. And it's hard in an application and a, a few minutes interview to really get the sense of a whole person. But I'll tell you the things I look at with the big disclaimer that this is one program and one program director's opinion. Uh, I'm looking for the real you. I know that sounds cliche, but I have an objective backing for that comment. The places you can express yourself are in the list of experiences, that tells me what was important to you. And that's why it's so important that you not create an artificial person in that space that you actually do. Same thing with personal statements. Uh, I, it's your chance to express to me who you are. And so many personal statements have gone cookie cutter, have gone templated. And deans do this. They say, don't be too outrageous, but, but you want to stand out a little bit, but not too much. And uh, I, the only thing about a personal statement that should matter in advice is make it a personal statement. And the, the cookie cutter, the, the three to four paragraph template of um, some activity that you can relate to surgery and then some patient that you had and, and then what the, the things you're looking for in a program. And I mean, they're all important, but, but when there's a thousand applications, you need it to stand out. The only, and the only thing that can make it stand out is making it about you. It's making it personal. So no, you don't want to write anything outrageous, but, but you want to write the real you. And, and so what you put in a personal statement, what you, what I see you've done with your experiences, uh, the, the, where I see you've thrown your, your research interests, it doesn't have to be 10 publications, but what you're interested in studying, what you did in college. I'm trying to build this avatar of you that, that gives me information of, of whether we have an atmosphere that, that's gonna make you better. Uh, but I think people are relying less and less on scores and grades, especially grades, that grades are so incomparable between schools now that it almost makes it unusable. Um, there are places where 90% of people get honors. There are places where 10% of people get honors. There are places where honors is the third highest grade you can get besides high honors and transcendent or whatever adjective they use. Uh, so none of those things are, are comparable. And then scores just, it talks to information, but it talks to test taking, which is one metric of of the 19 competencies we have to rate surgical residents on, medical knowledge is really just one or two of them. So where are all the others? They're in those areas that I told you about. That's a long answer for, for what you asked me, but uh, but it's, it's the honest 
answer. And that's why I, I spend the time reading it because that's what's going to get me is figuring out who the real you is and what what's important to you, what your values are. And that makes perfect sense why that would be successful for you to identify who it is because just like you said, I thought your point of not making an artificial avatar of yourself, you know, you really want the real you to show up because the whole goal, I think, to be successful is to find a program that you fit in with. That should be the, the main goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you want a place that's going to train you well. Some some people are interested, interested in the biggest name they can find, but when the blood is welling up at you in the abdomen, the name on your certificate's not going to bail you out. It's just, you got to know what you're doing. Wow. Um, now, so now that someone is in a residency, what makes a resident successful? What are some of the tips that you would have for someone on how to be a successful resident? I'm going to go to my program director's three word advice, uh, three, three, four, five word advice to me, which is your attitude more than your aptitude will determine your altitude. Uh, it is, it is what you make of it. It is, uh, I love, I've read somewhere and I don't know who to quote on this, but you know, the, the best attitudes in life is you don't wake up and see what kind of day you're going to have. You wake up and decide what kind of day you're going to have. And, and it's just the attitude that you take into it. Residency is hard. There's nothing easy about residency, even with hours restrictions, even with um, strictures around uh, what you're responsible for doing and how much of it. And, and if you have all the resources in the world, if you have people who will do blood draws and transport and, and all the things that you that can wear you down as part of non-educational pieces, just the, the stress of the learning curve and being responsible for outcomes and the amount of information you have to learn and, and the skill set that you have to put together and, and the hours that you have to do it. 80 hours, people, I, I think it's funny when people say you only have to work 80 hours, it's two full-time jobs, 80 hours. It's still a whole ton of hours. And, and people, of a certain generation who say the, the, the residents today don't have to go through what I went through. I agree with that statement, but I agree with it in reverse because we didn't have to fill out all these quality metrics. We didn't have to deal with Epic. We didn't have to turn in every regulation and take every module. And there's just so many requirements of them because of all of these pieces of EACGME and such that we never had to deal with. We, we just, we saw patients, we operated, we scribbled out a, a two, three word unintelligible note. And, and that was, I'm not saying that was good, but that's what we, <laughs> our requirement was. And so it's just a whole, it, there was such a wearing presence for these folks. You have to be able to have an attitude that says, this is hard. I'm doing my best. I will learn from my mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to use the support of the people around me and I'm going to support the people around me. And those people succeed. It, it is that team approach. I, when I gather my residents on the first day that they show up and, and what I do actually during the, during the uh, recruitment part and when I do the slides for the, the interviews, I talk about 60-40 relationships and how important 60-40 relationships are for the success of a residency. And I would say in life in general, but I tell people their personal lives are none of my business. It's just the residency part. But if you're on a team and 50-50 just doesn't work, if you're watching the line, I had a round on 10 people, you only had a round on eight, I had nine call nights, you only had six call nights, and you can't work in a, that way where everyone's watching each other's work product because 50-50 will never work out exactly. But if you have 60-40 where 
I'm done with my day. You still have three consults on your pile. Let me help you out so we both get out of here reasonably because you know what? Tomorrow, that's going to be reversed. And then they will have your back. And if the culture of a place is everyone always has each other's back and all both parties assume that they're the 60%, then there's no lie. And the culture of how well you get along with your co-residents, how every day goes, is just different than if everyone's just going off to their corners in a wrestling match. And then it makes it much harder than it needs to be. The work is there. No, burnout is not caused by hard work. Burnout is caused by futility. And futility is both moral injury when it relates to care, but it's also the environment and the stress and the relationship you have with your coworkers. You can tolerate any war if you're next to people in that bunker that you respect and care about, and and it's doable. Oh, that is so critical because um, I've heard burnout described in many different ways. Um, but I, you know, I completely agree with you. Burnout is not the amount of work that you do. Um, futility is one thing, and I heard you know a high risk job with little control their definition and it all is just um i think that's a fantastic approach to it is the teamwork um, that we're all in it together is a really fantastic way to approach uh, burnout prevention I, I completely agree and you're correct about the control with with the the part of the moral injury if you're trying to order a, a test or, or or an operation for someone and you spend three hours arguing with someone from an insurance company who has a, a double-digit IQ and a triple-digit income and questioning the, the 10 years of, of experience and that, that you have into part of making this decision, I think that's what crumples people. Absolutely. Um, now, let's say that people are now interested in becoming a program director. What do you think makes someone um, a successful candidate for a program director? You have to love it. <laughs> You're not doing this because it's offering you the financial security to retire early. <laughs> You're doing this because you you love this relationship. And, and if I had to tell you, I, I will do this as long as my badge works on the door and as long as they let me in, I'll continue to do this. The relationships you form because of the mentorship uh, is just, I, I love taking care of patients. I love operating. I love being a surgeon. There's a whole different level of of mentor, when you mentor people through the learning experience to do that. Uh, I love to teach. I would much, I'm much more comfortable standing at a podium or at a chalkboard or at an operating table. That's my comfort zone. Uh, I'm not the greatest administrator in the world. I, I, don't, um, I don't thrive at the, the, the detail of administrative work that's required for this. But if you're thinking about being a program director, it's because you love to teach and you love to mentor. And I can't, I have in my office here, just a row of the pictures of each graduating class I've had and watching them come in with equal amounts of terror and excitement. They're unconsciously incompetent and then they quickly become consciously incompetent. and then you take them from conscious incompetence to conscious competence, and then ultimately unconscious competence uh, through a five year and beyond. And high highs, low lows. There are days I have an open door policy. They just walk in that door and they do nothing but curse, yell, scream, kick furniture and leave. And that's okay. That's what they needed from me that day. Uh, and the next day is going to be better. And I tell them they're going to be nice. You're going to go out to your car and you're just going to sit there. You're not going to turn it on and you're going to say, what am I doing? I can't do this anymore. 
And we all have to. If you don't do that as an intern or as a second year, you're, you're not paying attention. And then you do. And, and then you realize the things that take you through this and the people you're helping and, and you start to see it through. And if you can be that person's coach and that person's mentor, and, and those are, we could spend the whole hour discussing the difference between those two words uh, as far as a specific skill set versus a life set. And, uh, but, but there's a lot of overlap too. And, and so uh, you, being that for that person and watching them struggle and watching them succeed and their triumphs and their lows. And then on the other end, they walk out and without noticing a day-to-day, minute-to-minute, uh, they're now surgeons and they know how to do this. Uh, and there's not a single one of them that in some way I don't still do a call or a text or, 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 or hear about what they're up to. And, and that relationship is lifelong. And uh, I wouldn't give that up for anything. So to your question, you want to be a program director it requires a lot of your time to you have to be available to them. You have to be able to see three steps ahead in a curricular way, something as broad as well, you better figure out how to teach them to be a robotic surgeon because robotics aren't going anywhere, despite your personal opinion about them, versus three steps ahead of, I think the whole thoracic division is about to quit next week, and I did need to figure out where they're going to get their cases from. And that's not true here. I'm just making that up. But uh, so on different levels, you need to anticipate, you need to guide curricula, you need to individualize curricula, you need to spend time talking to each person and what they're looking for, what they want to get out of it, and how you can provide those experiences. Then you have to have some tough conversations. You have to be willing to tell people when things are not going right, where it's not going right. But that's part of this too. Uh, but but you have to love it. You have to. You, you can't do this ninety eight percent. You got to do this one hundred and ten percent. Fantastic. I was going to ask you what's next, but you already told me. You said that we'd have to take your badge away and not let you in the building. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I love what we've built here. I imagine most program directors feel the same way. Uh, and I know program directors who have gone on to other things and, and they miss it. It's, uh, it's tough for them to walk away. And I understand why you just, it's, it's, it's like a school teacher, I'm sure, when they walk out of the classroom for the last time and that there's a piece of you that that's not there. And, and as long as this is fun, as long as I feel like I'm giving value and worth to the, the people who I guide through this, I will continue to do that. Uh, and I, I feel like I still uh, still can offer a few tips here and there and, and be good at it. So. That's fantastic. Well, I think that, you know, that is so much valuable information just for anyone going um, in just the world of surgery too, about people that may be interested in, in joining residency and how to be successful in being a program director and just a valuable kind of touch into about what surgical education is and what it isn't because, you know, I finished in my residency in 2010. It already sounds like things are a lot different. We were already starting to see the hints of score and, and, uh, you know, I kind of cringed a little bit when he said something in a textbook. I'm like, yeah, that, that, that makes me sound old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still have the textbooks here and I still think we have residents who read textbooks. Um, it's just, it was the universal way that we all learned. And there's just so many different ways to learn now that, that uh, I sense it's, it's getting a little bit in the ancient category. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Dort. I think this is going to be really helpful um, for a lot of folks. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I, again, I think it's a wonderful series and, and I hope that people are, are getting everything that, that they can get out of this because it's really very rare to get this kind of insightful information. Not me personally, but just the series that you're running.
Right. Oh, actually, one last question. Sure. Um, what do you think is missing from residency? Because the whole premise behind BOSS is lessons not taught in residency. What are things that you would want to teach to residents that you just don't have time or there's not a format for it? What life is like. Uh, and I think that's what you attack best with the subjects that you've covered. When we trained, uh, you didn't talk about running a practice. You didn't talk about money. You didn't talk about malpractice or any of the things that anything that wasn't a clinical topic was really kind of taboo. And now it is making its entrance into curriculum more and more, but episodically, you know, we'll have one day, one Wednesday, we do our protected education time Wednesday mornings. We'll throw a Wednesday morning or two with, uh, we'll have someone from legal come in, someone from contracts come in, but we've had private practitioners talk a little bit about the challenges of private practice, but it's still peripheral. And when you get out into practice, you know, every case is challenging. Every, every operation is different. Even if it's, you do a thousand gallbladders and each one of them is different in a different way, but you start to anticipate patterns and, and you can work through those. That's not what's going to stump you. What's, I mean, you'll have a challenging case. There's no question here and there, but what you're totally unprepared for from our current system is the emotional, professional, legal, practice challenges, partner challenges, scope of practice challenges, uh, things you just, you can't see in residency. You, you, even if I sat there and even the days we, we do these lectures, I'm not sure that it's absorbed as a, this is critically important for me because I have so many other things I'm worried about. I, I got to do an M&M on Wednesday. I'm on call tonight. I those are the things right in front of them. So I'm not even sure it registers to that point. The chiefs start to pick it up. As they get late, and I have a few chiefs a few weeks from graduating now, and you know they started the year wanting to do all the esophagectomies and whipples, and now it's like, let me get every inguinal hernia I can get my hands on because they recognize that's what's coming. Uh, but they're asking practice questions. I've had graduates who send their contracts to me. It's like, would you look over these? Because I have no idea what I'm looking at. And it's like, well, maybe a contract lawyer is a good place to start, but uh, but I'll be happy to look at it. And my idiot surgeon advice is, you know, if you have two practices you're looking at and one of them sends you a five-page contract and the other sends you a 20-page contract, go with the five-page contract. The F extra 15 pages are not for your benefit. I don't know if that's real advice or not, but that's what I've told it's actually, honestly sounds like really good advice. <laughs> that's a great question because that's really, they don't learn this stuff. And that's why these kind of series are so important because they don't learn it in any formal curricular way. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, again, Dr. Dort. And then I look forward to seeing you soon. Yes. Same here. Same here. Thanks. If you're a graduating chief resident or starting a new job, you're going to want to join me on Wednesday, the 18th of May at 6 p.m. Central to hear about tips on starting a new job. Head to bosssurgery.com for more details.